Hi guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to this week's No Limits Metrap Podcast. How are you doing this week, Mike? I'm doing great, but congrats again to you. Another life event for the Furman family. Congrats on the move and the new house. Seems to be a weekly occurrence here. Uh, <laughs> yes, we just moved. Um, and well, I guess we'll just say on the top, uh, because of the move, we uh, had to bump back part two of our American Assassin, but it'll be worth the wait. We'll, we'll get to that in, in a second. But yeah, we just moved into our new house in Columbia, Maryland, and I'm, I still have yet to set up the Wi-Fi. So that's right. why, uh, <laughs> you know, things you have to think about when you have a podcast. Yeah, internet might need to be a priority in your next move, Chris. You know, make that the first thing on your checklist. Well, I got the gig. So I got the gig the gig speed. I went for the big, you know, the big heavy hitter. Nice. I actually came today when I got home, so uh, it's in a big box. Oh, so you, you just were too lazy to set it up. Yeah, well, I, I got home at nine thirty, so and then I rolled right into this. So yeah, that's where we are. <laughs> yeah, but all that is the reason we again are going to have to push back our American Assassin Part Two. But there is a positive side to uh, you guys waiting and being patient. Is that we've decided next week to go live. We are going to deliver. A live podcast event, live streaming through Facebook. So if you're not already a Facebook member of the No Limits Mitrap Pod Facebook group, go ahead, join that group, search it up, and you can get a notification Wednesday, that is the 23rd of June, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be doing American Assassin Part 2 live. That'll be exciting. Yeah, but you know what that means? If we're live for part two, the people are getting a live limerick. And yeah, live limerick off the cuff or pre pre planned? Oh no no no! Uh, these things take time. This will be planned out. Okay, okay. I don't know if I could freestyle a limerick. That you're putting me on the spot now. That'll be tough. <laughs> but they get the cover review. Judge a book by its cover. That'll be fun live. Yeah, a lot of covers for this book. A yeah, what lot we, of like covers. 15 of them? I think so. I think so. Yeah, a lot of covers. And a lot of interest in the covers. So we've, you know, we've been posting a lot on social media. Got a lot of interaction with our uh, movie review pod. Right. Uh, today uh, on um, Insta, Dawn, <laughs> she posted, tell me how you really feel, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was funny. So. Did you see the Twitter poll? I was I was shot down big time. No one else joined me on the D train or the F train with that one. A lot of C, C pluses. A lot of C pluses. You were right but, there in the wheelhouse. A lot of people yeah. thought. But someone someone added in an F. Like I, I thought that was funny. <laughs> That's true. I did see that. So shout out to whoever on Facebook added an F on the poll. You you and I are on the same wavelength, but. Dawn, uh, not so much. <laughs> Dawn's no, up there with Katie in the B+. Plus. Yeah, with, with the B-plus range. Big fan, big fan. That was a good pod. Go give it a listen if you haven't already um, done that. And so this allows us one more week to, or allows you one more week to call us up. We have a Google Voice line. That number is 
7770. And, you know, we have a couple of voicemails. We even have one limerick. So yes. we would love to hear from you, share anything, your Mitrap origin story, your thoughts on the American Assassin movie, your thoughts on the American Assassin book, any book. We just want to hear from you. You know, this is such a great community, and we really want to share, you know, thoughts from you guys on this live in-person pod. So, yeah, that'd be great. Even a limerick. You know, we have one, another one. would love, like, a little limerick off. Maybe we'll do a listener appreciation at some point soon and, you know, recap some of these voicemails, different reviews that people have left us, and social media engagement. But speaking of reviews, one way you can always get involved besides watching next week's live stream or calling in to the podcast voicemail, uh, you can also leave us a review. Five stars on Apple Podcasts makes a big difference, helps helps get the word out there, and click the little write a review button and and tell us what you think. Uh, Just don't trash me over my rating of the American Assassin movie and Dylan (laughs) O'Brien, but... Yeah, rate us on the other 61 episodes. Yes, please. Speaking of engagement, though, we always thank our patrons. You guys make the show possible. And just a reminder, next week, also on our live episode, next Wednesday, or, well, when you guys listen to this, a few days from from the release of this episode, we'll be giving away a copy of American Assassin, the movie, a Blu-ray copy. So... If you would like a chance at that giveaway and you'd like to support our efforts uh, in creating this podcast, just go to patreon.com slash Pod and sign up to give back and help support the podcast. Yeah, that's awesome. Otherwise, what are we covering today, Chris? We got a special one today. Good interview. Yes, this was, you know, we've had actually a string of pretty good hosts where They've been, I mean, I love all of our, I'm not host, guests, uh, I love all of our guests, but these last three, I feel like I've really gotten a lot of education out of uh, right. each each one of them, uh, but with this one, I it, it was awesome. I, I felt when we got off the phone call, I could have talked to him for uh, at least two more hours, if not longer. So today, we have a expert in all things Beirut, Lebanon, the intelligence field, and that is the very one, the only, Fred Burton. Fans of the pod who also listen to Jack Carr's Danger Close will know that he was in the last month on that. And so because American Assassin takes place, um, I guess, 50% of the time in, in Lebanon, in, in Beirut, and just hearing him describe some of these places, we thought it would be cool to pick his brain, find out a little bit more about his time there, uh, discuss the book, which he actually read for us because he had never actually read a, a Vince Flynn novel, but he said he's going to read some more. Yeah, so this was a great interview. I really hope you guys enjoy it. And uh, yeah, here it is. Today, we welcome a very special guest, someone with years, or dare I say, decades of experience in the intelligence services. Someone you may know from the fantastic books, Beirut Rules, Ghost, among many others. Welcome to the podcast, Fred Burton. Yes, welcome. Well, thank you so much, Chris and Mike, for having me on. That's very kind of you. Yeah, well, I heard uh, a lot about your backstory on the Danger Close podcast with Jack Carr just last month. 
I've already picked up a few of your books and really fascinated by not only this time period in history you cover, really all these different events and terrorism from the 1980s to the present day. How about you take us through your past, your backstory, what got you to where you are today, and how you got involved in the intelligence industry? Well, uh, first, Mike and Chris, thank you so much for having me. And uh, Jack Carr has has really been uh, a very good friend. And uh, I certainly thank him for all the support he's given me over, over the past few years. I kind of backed into the counterterrorism space, which uh, I talked about in my my first book, Ghost, which was my memoir, I was a cop and uh, I wanted to be a federal agent. So I applied to this organization that quite frankly, very few people had heard of within the State Department, went through the basic uh, agent training program and the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. And of course, the uh, crash and bang courses, the firearms courses and so forth. And then right out of basic agent training, I was assigned to what then was called the counterterrorism branch. And uh, I had basically no experience in terrorism. I, I, I'd been a patrol cop and, you know, a job that, a job that I did like. And uh, now I had stepped into uh, uh, clearly something that I was probably in retrospect, uh, greatly unprepared for. And uh, initially in uh, 1986, uh, I started training in 85. Uh, we only had three of us for the world. And uh, I was assigned uh, the Middle East, which uh, subsequently turned out to be any group that operated out of the Middle East. So my portfolio included, uh, you know, the likes of Hezbollah, uh, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, uh, right. the Black September Organization, Abu Nidal, your usual suspects. And and one of the big, big cases that I had was uh, all the American hostages that were held captive in Lebanon, uh, primarily as we focused our attention on trying to find CIA station chief uh, Bill Buckley. And uh, that was the purpose of uh, our hostage location task force that was actually stood up at the CIA at the time uh, to try to find Bill. And we figured that if we could find Bill, we could find all the other American hostages. And, you know, uh, Chris and Mike, in between that, uh, you know, we were running aircraft uh, bombings, uh, hijackings, um, plane crashes, uh, you name it, uh, to include, uh, you know, the bombing of Pan Am 103 out of uh, Lockerbie, Scotland. Right. We really wanted to have you on because our book of the month this month, uh, you know, we're a mid-trap podcast. We cover all of Vince Flynn's books. And so this month we're doing American Assassin. And as we're reading it, right, it's set in this time period right around, I think, when, or right, I guess right around the time when, when you got involved or right, right after. And Vince keeps bringing up this idea of how America was sort of out of the game. And, I, you know, re listening to your story on... um danger close and also you know beginning to read your books you know you're almost like entering as Mitch Rapp is entering so I wonder if you could sort of expand on this idea of why Vince kept on bringing this that we were out of the game and we needed to get into the game it's a great question and I think Vince's uh, extraordinary research at that time period was simply spot on uh, I think that um, he articulated so well in his 
thriller American assassin, exactly what we were dealing with. Uh, Chris and Mike, um, we lacked human intelligence. Uh, we lacked uh, uh, an operational capability in Beirut. Uh, obviously, the first embassy bombing, uh, which is certainly covered in American Assassin II by Vince uh, in April of 1983, uh, sent shockwaves across the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, you know, we were blinded. We never saw it coming. And then, of course, um, you know, the man that was sent in to kind of rebuild the eyes and ears for the U.S. intelligence right. community in Beirut was William F. Buckley or Bill Buckley. And, um, you know, at the time, Bill was uh, 55 years old and extraordinarily uh, decorated hero from my perspective. You know, the recipient of two silver stars uh, had uh, fought as a, a young kid in the Korean War. Uh, and then gone back and gotten his college degree, then went off to Vietnam and became one of Kennedy's first Green Berets, and then spent his entire life in the intelligence community, predominantly in the CIA Special Activities Division. Yes, which uh, sounds a lot where a lot like where Mitch Rapp works, uh, from from my read of uh, American Assassin, which uh, I have to say uh, was a very very good book, and. Um, you know, Vince painted a picture uh, so eloquently uh, through fiction of exactly what we were experiencing when we were looking for the hostages in Beirut. And there's a lot of parallels between the different events you mentioned and what happens in a lot of Vince's stories. And I was blown away reading your retelling of Beirut in the 80s and into the late 80s. And some of the direct parallels to the story here in American Assassin, for example, if you can give us um, a feeling of what the city was like, because Vince describes it as a post-Civil War, there's a bit of a ceasefire, yet many factions are still vying for territory and power. You would see bombed out buildings being claimed by the Maronite Christians on one side, and then the Shia influences who were funding groups like Hezbollah, trying to take buildings and fight for, for territory. And Vince uses this green line, I think Hamra Street, uh, showing the divide. Does, do you think he's giving us a real good picture of, of Beirut at the time, you know, amidst the kidnappings, the bombings, and, and towards the tail end of the Civil War? Mike, Vince uh, painted a picture an American assassin of exactly what Beirut was like during this time period. I think the scenario is 1989 uh, or the year thereabouts. Right. And um, the place was in chaos. And that was part of the problem with our inability to have any accurate on ground intelligence. And, and look, it was like Casablanca. It, it was where every intelligence service was operating right. from from the Americans to the French, to the British, uh, to the Israelis, to the Lebanese Christians. And then of course we had this group called uh, Islamic Jihad, right. which we, we quite frankly couldn't figure out exactly who they were. Uh, we would argue about that. And, and we just could not make sense of the dynamics because there were so many actors and so many players on the ground there. And, the city was war torn and 
um, it was led by clans and, and families and terrorist organizations. And uh, it was like uh, nomad. It was like escape from uh, New York in, in one of these, you know, uh, films where you really couldn't get a handle on uh, who was the good guys and who was the bad guys. And people were getting kidnapped and people were getting shot at and, you know, Westerners were being kidnapped. And, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, it really, it really made me think when I was reading American Assassin guys, that when Vince depicted, you know, the hostage uh, holding locations, it, I, I vividly, I vividly uh, harken back to my debriefings of numerous hostages that we brought out of Lebanon and, and the way they painted the picture of how the hostage guards worked and their torture and the solitary confinement and the unsanitary conditions. And uh, they could hear sounds at times. And, and I think Vince just painted that with a skill that is very rare uh, in that uh, although it's fiction, uh, it reads like um, a nonfiction story right. when you're looking at that time period in Beirut. It's crazy. You, you bring up the details that you spoke with people in those holding uh, facilities because there's one scene in the book where the different clans and factions of the terrorist leadership are arguing about human excrement and if their men should be allowed to, you know, uh, do their business in the buildings. And then one's like, make your guys walk to the roof and do it there. And so it sounds like for our guys who were on the ground, that's that's exactly what was happening. And then Vince oh. even used two names. Badreddin came up in your book briefly and Imad Mugnia. I, I just couldn't believe it when I was reading your nonfiction and Vince used all the details, including some of the names of these groups. Yeah, he he did extraordinarily good research in, in piecing this together. Uh, the the Badreddin was certainly one of the uh, hostage holders that we actually suspected that was involved. Uh, we knew that Imad Mugnia uh, his code name was the Fox. Mm. Uh, we knew that he was actively involved in not only the kidnapping of Bill Buckley, but many other Westerners uh, to include the hijacking of TWA flight 847, uh, as well as uh, the bombings of the U S embassy in 83 and in an 84 and the bombing of the U S embassy in Kuwait, uh, you know, before Osama bin Laden came around uh, Mugnia was the poster child for terror. And uh, as a result of that, we had a very large bounty on his head, but we could never catch him because we just simply lacked the intelligence resources during that time period. But what I think Vince did so magnificently is that the confusion that we had back in Washington of trying to make sense of this threat landscape and trying to figure out who actually held the hostages. Mm. We would argue about that. You know, what was the degree of uh, Iranian control? Uh, what role did the Russians play in this, if any? And much like we're chatting now, we would go back and forth and, and we just lacked that, that tactical insight to be able to say definitively. And I think Vince painted that picture well yeah. with some of the scenes between Mognia and uh, Fatah which was the Palestinians, you know, uh, and then of course you've got the Russians in play right? and you've got the Iranians in play. So uh, it was damn good work on his part 
in in painting that scene. You you mentioned something there, and it, it makes me think of something that Rap often encounters in, in many of his books. But it's it's this idea of coming up against bureaucracy and and uh, politicians. And I wonder if you could expand on any if you ever encountered any of those frustrations um, throughout your time in you know the intelligence world. <laughs> That was a daily occurrence. Uh, <laughs> I bet you know you, you felt at times that you were just pushing boulders up a hill. I, uh, uh, that, I've well, got. How, how do you overcome it? How do you overcome it? Well, uh, you you simply do what uh, Mitch Rapp did, and that's mm. uh, you go around it, you go through it, right. uh, you in run it, uh, you try to cut corners if you can. Uh, you know, surprisingly, and I worked through many many different uh, administrations, both Republicans and Democrats, and. Behind the scenes, there's always a cadre of people like Mitch uh, that just get the job done. And they let the bureaucrats deal with, uh, you know, the hand wringing in Washington. Uh, but, you know, there's always prices to be paid for that. Um, you know, for example, I've, I've gotten much, much more credit than I deserve for this. But I was involved with the capture of Ramsey Yosef, the mastermind of the first World Trade Center bombing. And we just got lucky, but we had a very short window of time to capture him. And I knew that if we had played by the rules, uh, we would lose him. So I chose not to play by the rules and we captured him. Now, of course, there was hell to pay afterwards because Washington can be very a, a very vindictive place. Mm. But um, when you start talking about bureaucracy in Washington, especially in the 80s, where where the late 80s where American assassin takes place. Um, this was a time period, remember, before 9-11. And we were always under-resourced, understaffed, which, uh, you know, Vince alludes to in American assassin about how the Americans uh, were losing mm -hmm. and losing badly. And we were. And terrorism just really wasn't a priority. And it's, it's hard to imagine that today because of our endless wars since 9-11. Uh, but in those days, uh, terrorism just really wasn't viewed on the same scale as it was. It took 9-11 to happen hmm. for the world to wake up as to what we were facing, even though many had suffered and bled horribly as a result of this. Do you think that if, you know, you mentioned you were one of three people that, um, you know, joined in the beginning of the, the diplomatic security service, do you think if we had gotten a better handle early on, we would we have been able to prevent 9-11 or was something like that always inevitable? I think most certainly we could have. Uh, if we had had uh, terrorism as a national uh, priority, it wasn't at that time. Uh, remember, you know, the whole intelligence op operations were set up uh, in a Cold War kind of environment where we were looking at Russia and the evil empire. Uh, and terrorism was not really viewed as a strategic threat against America. Uh, it was a tactical concern. Yeah, you know, we, we're, we understand that diplomats are going to get assaulted or kidnapped or occasionally murdered overseas. But, you know, quite frankly, and, and I'm a student of... Um, of uh, attacks on diplomatic facilities. I've been writing about them for a long time now and, and lived through many, is that if you look 
uh, in the 70s, there was a relentless tempo of kidnappings and murders of diplomats. And then in the 80s, where American Assassin takes place, the backdrop is just as bad, if not worse, because we had suffered these you know, catastrophic attacks in Beirut specifically with uh, the bombings of the embassies and the Marine barracks. And then, of course, uh, the CIA station chief. I mean, think about it uh, in concept. Um, one day in 1979, you had the U.S. embassy in Tehran that uh, was overran and seized. But what most people don't realize, that same day in Kabul, Afghanistan, the United States ambassador was kidnapped and murdered. Same day. Well, same I day. I didn't, I didn't know, know that. that. Right. Most people don't. Huh. Think of the political fallout on Benghazi with the horrific killing of Ambassador Chris Stevens, which right. I wrote about, but it was just a different era. Right. And you didn't have the 24 by 7, you know, news. news. You didn't yeah. have social media. Right. Uh, so then if you step back in this time period where Vince is writing about an American assassin, it was almost like, okay, we've had another bombing or we've had another killing, you know, let's go figure out, try to figure out what happened and wait for the next one. So many, so many points I want to bring up. And that, that last one just has me thinking, I almost wish I could read your writing about that, which I should hope uh, at some point we'll be able to, but I'm just thinking about this ever-changing world and this ever-changing threat and what that means, well, for America going forward, but I'm thinking for Mitch Rapp going forward. You know, Kyle Mills is really charged now with updating the series, bringing it to the modern era. As he said many a times, Vince during his lifetime did not see the rise of ISIS. And so various things like that keep changing and evolving on the field of battle or the field of intelligence. So how would you say we've responded? And a, and a second part to that is, do you feel the political wind shifting uh, in the sense that we are quite far removed, a full generation or two removed from 9-11? Uh, have we learned our lessons or are we are we at a crossroads where we might have been a little caught unawares like we were in, you know, in the early eighties in Beirut, are we headed down that path with the political wind shifting away from, I would say some of the intelligence services, particularly with the last administration uh, being fortified and strengthened and supported? Uh, or do you see us moving in a good place to also adapt to these ongoing threats? Well, I think you raise a very good question, Mike. I think that what, what we're looking at as you forecast, and I know, um, as you start thinking about the kind of problems that Mitch Rapp can can hopefully resolve for us in the future, uh, you, you can only look at how we were blindsided as a nation with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And then you look at uh, cyber and the confluence of right. physical and cyber today and, and the never ending struggle to stay in front of that. And when you start looking at that is when are we going to see some kinetic response as a result of a major cyber attack. Mm. So for example, what's the threshold for that? Right now you have companies being attacked and, and an extraordinary amount of financial loss, but will it take something as catastrophic as all the lights turning green in America one day? So there's horrific loss automobile access, correct. 
And then how do you identify who's behind that? And then are you going to hold them accountable for such actions? Right. Or, or is Mitch Rapp going to go in right. uh, to extract uh, his degree of retribution, not vengeance, <laughs> but retribution uh, as a result of that? So if you, if you look out over the horizon, there, there's, it, it's a wonderful time to be a uh, fiction plot writer uh, to uh, put together possible scenarios that could be facing our nation. You have a lot to work with. You certainly do. Kind of in the same vein, how do you feel the mission, if you will, of our intelligence service and apparatus, in addition to switching to cyber, do you see it needing to make a switch towards the home front in, with the degree of civil disobedience or the rise of domestic extremist groups? Uh, do you see that as a threat in any way that we need to get ahead of? Or is that something less on your radar than some of these foreign external threats? No, I. I, I think the events of January the 6th at the U.S. Capitol uh, was certainly a wake-up call, but we've had many others. You know, for example, uh, I was at FBI headquarters the day that the bombing in Oklahoma City took place. Right. And we were convinced that was Hezbollah again, back to Beirut. Just based upon the modeling, mm. if you can visualize the damage and put that uh, federal building up against the U.S. Embassy in Beirut, either one of the bombings, they look almost identical. And that was a hell of a big bomb. And we were completely blindsided by the fact that that could be done domestically by an individual or a very small secretive cell that we knew nothing about. And that's the challenge today with the McVeighs of the future in what is called a leader, leaderless resistance model, meaning if the three of us have formed a terrorist organization, domestic or international, the likelihood of the FBI picking us off might be good, or one of us uh, going forward and being worked as a double agent. But if you act alone, similar mm. to like what Sirhan Sirhan did, uh, or uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, or John Hinckley, for the most part, you can be successful, provided you know how to put together, for example, a VBIED like uh, McVeigh did. So. You know, it's a daunting challenge. And, you know, the FBI, you know, the one thing that I do fear as I sit back and have, have been in this business since 1981 is that the FBI has so much responsibility, mm. so much turf that they're responsible for globally is I do worry that they can be stretched too thin at times. And uh, do they really have a good handle on the domestic threat extremists, either the left or the right, that could potentially rear their ugly heads and carry out another Oklahoma City-like bombing. Right. Wow. I I want to go back uh, to something you said, and if you could just elaborate a little bit more. I know you talked about it a lot on on Danger Close with Jack Carr, but just your involvement with uh, with Ramzi Youssef. You yeah. know, would you consider that? one of your biggest accomplishments? I mean, it, it sounded, it was just amazing, you know, how you tracked him down. And I mean, you said you got lucky, but I think it was a little bit more than luck. Well, uh, no, Chris, I, I, I kind of view what Ramsey Yosef was capable of doing as a failure on our part, meaning mm, true. Uh, his success in the 93 World Trade Center bombing. We had no idea. Um, and you got to go back before that. I actually worked the assassination of, 
Rabbi Meir Kahani in New York City uh, by El Sayed Nosser, who was an Egyptian uh, assassin who shot Kahani. And he was part of the group that put together the World Trade Center bombing. Again, we were blinded. Uh, we had no uh, forewarning that that was going to take place. So uh, I view that as an intelligence failure. And, you know, quite frankly, uh, Yosef was, uh, um, you know, he, he was trying to kill the Pope in the Philippines. Uh, he was putting bombs on aircraft. Mm -hmm. uh, he was on a, a uh, global uh, terror, uh, you know, kind of streak the likes of which we hadn't seen for years. And, and, you know, I was really not convinced that our, our source that, that helped us uh, locate Yosef was good to begin with. And, and we had um, one of the programs that my office ran was the rewards for justice program, which has got a lot of attention over the 20 million for, for bin Laden. Right. In those days, you know, the most we had to spend was I think 5 million, but uh, still a lot of money. And we had a lot of people coming forward with Yosef sightings all around the world. And I was skeptical uh, until, uh, you know, the source actually produced. So, um, you know, sometimes in this business, um, you do get lucky. Uh, it's rare, but sometimes you do. And, you know, do I view that as a, a great accomplishment? I, I think, uh, you know, I'm very happy that we, we were able to capture him and bring him to justice so he couldn't kill again. But I also recognize that uh, uh, he was responsible for a lot of death and carnage uh, before we caught him. So, you know, I, I do have mixed emotions on that. Yeah, it's amazing how much of our accomplishments in this field were so close to being disasters. And it's a, it seems a very thin line. And our role, uh, we would hope, is to broaden that, that thin line, make it a little thicker. So if, if we were to double down on, on protecting the homeland, and let's say that should become a major focus of whether it's a future election or a budgeting process or just shifting the political will in that direction, what would you, what would you recommend is, is the first step? Uh, do we strengthen signal intelligence? Do we have to double down on electronic communications? Is it human intelligence? Do we need more guys out in the field, eyes and ears, undercover operatives? Where do we need to rebuild or strengthen the most, would you say, in this really just complex, ever-changing world of threats? Well, I think when you look at uh, uh, great power, uh, namely, you're talking about the United States, China, and Russia at a 30,000-foot level, uh, it, it's been that way uh, for a good 30 years now, and I don't see that shifting. So you have to start looking at uh, great power initiatives and espionage and, and national security from that perspective. And that's a strategic kind of issue. Uh, you have to have uh, enough warnings and tripwires in place to eliminate another Pearl Harbor, another 9-11, another Oklahoma City. And that requires, uh, you know, a very holistic kind of approach when you start looking at uh, threats against our homeland. Now, the challenge you have with that is that in today's world, uh, there's so much information and so many threat streams that are coming at you. And I think for the most part, the intelligence community does a very good job of sifting through 
the noise and, and trying to focus on the signals that are really important. And quite frankly, the, the FBI has done a good job of preventing another strategic strike on U.S. soil. You're, you're not going to, you know, I, I hate to break it for, for your listeners, but you're not going to stop every active shooter, right. uh, every mass shooter, uh, anybody that wants to pick up an AR-15 and start shooting people, that's extraordinarily difficult to prevent. But you can stop uh, the next World Trade Center and, and the Oklahoma cities and so forth. And that takes a very robust, uh, laser-focused, uh, predominantly FBI uh, here domestically. And, but again, it, it's much like the Secret Service mandate. There's a lot of mission creep with mm. uh, federal law enforcement agencies and one has to worry about, uh, you know, are they spread too thin? You know, if I was in charge, which I'll never will be, uh, but if I was, I would refocus a lot of these different agencies' responsibilities and, and kind of narrow those gaps. But you're touching the third rail and the holy grail in Washington of headcount mm-hmm. and budgets mm. and politics and Congress and lobbyists. And good luck on that. Right. You know, can I ask, because just being, you know, a layperson, uh, no no military, no intelligence background of any sort, just a social studies teacher who likes history and government and politics. Sometimes when I hear about reorganizations or efforts to roll out the next committee, the next task force or joint operations and it seems like a political play sometimes, you know, when that's in a stump speech or when that's the main headline coming out of a budget bill. How can someone like me, a consumer of, of news and media in this day and age, know what's BS, but what is also like verified that someone like you would say, yeah, that's a shakeup we need, as opposed to my critic side just saying, oh, this is that bullshit Mitch Rapp would be against, you know, the kind of stuff he'd roll <laughs> his eyes about and kick and scream. But it sounds like a reorg like that could be very beneficial. How would I tell the difference? Well, uh, it, it's tough. It, it's hard to make sense of that. But let me back up and say something, uh, Mike. Don't don't underestimate the importance that you serve in uh, the education of of our youth and and young minds. Uh, and uh, trust me when I say you are probably making an extraordinary difference in in those kids' lives. And I, I had teachers like that through my entire school schoolings that kept me on the straight and narrow and at least tried to help. We've got some young uh, analysts coming up the pipeline. I mean, some of the things and, and the ways they can think, you know, I, I hope you guys recruit them, you know. <laughs> I hope Irene Kennedy's out there snatching a few up because they're, they're, they're bright, a lot of these kids. I'm sure. I know. I talk to a lot of them all the time. Good. Well, yeah, it's it's very difficult. I mean, you can look at the politicization of of all of these. For example, we would call them inside the Beltway witch hunts, right? Or, or after action reports and studies, and they usually put together a panel of of experts. And but again, what happens as a result of that is you have so many people in play that again are trying to navigate loss of headcount or an increase of headcount uh, or an increase of budget. And some things, um, you know, can be done on a practical level, but Washington never really tries to do that. And, you know, you look at the, you know, horrific events of the fallout of Benghazi, for example, uh, 
And, you know, that's the kind of attack that the State Department Diplomatic Security Service has a long history of being involved with. And you start thinking through that just from a logical perspective and say, well, why in the heck are just five agents there by themselves with the ambassador on 9-11? And it doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. But on a practical level, you know, the United States ambassador in any country is is a king and Washington rarely can tell them what to do, if anything. Uh, they typically report directly to the NSC or the White House and some and, and a bifurcated line to state. So, you know, they're out there on their own. And so, you know, some of these problems are systemic, institutional uh, you look at uh, an organization like the U.S. Capitol Police, which I'm very familiar with. It's a good organization. You know, why weren't they not better prepared? Uh, well, you know, there's a thousand reasons why. Uh, and, you know, it's just tragic that these events unfold. But, you know, the one thing that that I think also that uh, Vince has done with his books and he's also depicted as to how quickly things go south is what we say, meaning mm-hmm. it's, it's never really one thing that, that, that causes these disasters to happen. There's usually a systemic failure along a line and it's like a domino effect. Meaning right. if you look at when Bill Buckley was kidnapped, for example, in Lebanon, he was living off compound. He was driving himself to work. Right. He was living off on the economy. That makes no sense today. Shouldn't right. Yeah. That. I right. couldn't believe but, that hearing he would just, you know, kind of stroll around the city and lived in an apartment off complex. I was like, what? Right. Yeah. Right. And operationally, he thought that that was the best way for him to be able to do his job, but he paid a very heavy price for making those decisions. But my point being is that it wasn't just one isolated event that caused that to happen. There's always this domino effect with all of these cases. And then after they happen, you can go back and say, well, my goodness, you know, why didn't you do A, B, C, D, E, and F? And sometimes guys in Washington, I've seen this my entire career, is I was never trained to protect anybody when the building was set on fire. Now, the agents going through basic agent training at the State Department train to protect someone. Mm. They set the building on fire and you train. And the one takeaway that you can say for sure in this space is that uh, catastrophe forces change. And it's usually that and that only that causes change. Right. It's, it's, we have to learn from our mistakes. If we don't, then it, it makes it even worse. Right. Right, Chris. Before we uh, started recording, you, you mentioned um, that uh, the downing of the Pan Am Lockerbie, o- o- Pan Am flight over Lockerbie, Scotland. You, and you mentioned this on, I think, on the pod with Jack Carr that you lost three agents in that. I wanted to know if you could sort of expand on if, if you played any role in that investigation, because, you know, this is um, a key event in the backstory of Mitch Rapp. So it's we just wanted to pick your brain a little bit more of that, about that. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'll never forget that day. I, I always mark it on my calendar and I uh, say a prayer every December 21st. Uh, 
because that that's when Lockerbie crashed, December 21st, 1988. Uh, I was in our counterterrorism uh, division at the time. Uh, I can't remember if I had been promoted up to the dep- deputy chief of that division at the time. I'm, I'm just really not sure off the top of my head. But um, the plane went down. Uh, we knew that uh, we had uh, a bunch of Americans coming home for the holidays. Again, it was four days before Christmas. And uh, we would have travel cables, you know, like when an agent left a post. And so, for example, if an agent was was traveling out of Beirut, they would send a travel cable back. So, you know, it wasn't like today with the Internet where you could very quickly collate travel data and patterns and this and that. Uh, We had to uh, ramp up and try to determine who was on aboard that aircraft, like in any plane crash, Uh, State Department Operations Center. Uh, was doing that. We learned that we had a, a whole group of uh, students from Syracuse University that were aboard the flight. Uh, we knew we had American diplomats on the flight. And um, so we had a problem with uh, a range of different issues. Uh, we had to account and make sure that uh, where our people were, uh, we were looking at things such as, you know, were there any diplomatic pouches aboard that mm-hmm. aircraft that somebody might have been carrying. Uh, quite frankly, we did not know for, for many, many hours. Uh, we were trying to put together a manifest. Uh, we were hoping some people did not get on the flight, quite frankly. Uh, I actually traveled over um, to uh, Cyprus, and we were bringing uh, uh, some of our personnel out of Beirut and interviewing them concerning uh, the travel arrangements and, uh, you know, when did they schedule? Uh, we were looking at uh, the possibility of the flight being specifically targeted uh, or compromised to some degree because our personnel w- was on board. And remember, you had, uh, and it's every international investigation that I've been a part of, and I many, you know, such as, you know, the plane crash, which killed President Zia, Pakistan. I, 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 was on that investigation too. Um, There's confusion, there's chaos, uh, there's multiple agencies involved. Uh, In Pan Am 103, we had the National Transportation Safety Board, we had uh, the FBI, we had the CIA, we had the State Department, we had DOD. Uh, Then you had uh, the British Security Service, MI6. Uh, You had uh, uh, the Irish National Police, uh, you had uh, the Scottish authorities. Interpol and then you have- with Kyle's father, I believe. Or no, was he the FBI liaison? For I know Kyle Mills, his father, had some involvement as well. I forget what angle he came from. I think FBI. Yeah, I think it was FBI, yeah. I'm not sure of that specific point. But yes, uh, Interpol obviously plays a role in these cases. And, and um, you're trying to figure out, are there other bombs on other planes too? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm while you're dealing with that disaster, then uh, you're doing a tremendous amount of triage and, and crisis management with that. And so you're working with the, with the airline carrier too, Pan Am, and you're trying to reconstruct exactly where that plane had been uh, over the last uh, 72 hours before it took off. And so you're trying to put together other passenger lists. Uh, you're running name checks on everybody that was aboard that flight. Uh, and then uh, you're hoping, 
you're praying that you know some of the folks that you might knew might might have known didn't make it aboard. Uh, then you know um, that investigation was uh, in many ways uh, heartbreaking. Um, one of the most complex can of worms that still speculated today as to you know who might have actually been responsible for it. Um, I still see reports of that. You know, I every time I get a, a Google alert on Pan Am, uh, you know, 103, I take a look at it because I'm still interested in the case. And, you know, we had a forensic link to Libya, mm-hmm. which was pretty strong. And uh, but then again, uh, you know, there's always speculation that, you know, was that a false flag? You know, could that have been Iran? Uh, could that have been Hezbollah? Uh, you know, some of my colleagues from that time period uh, in the intelligence community, uh, you know, they're, they're really kind of split. Uh, you know, so it, it's the kind of case, guys, that will we ever know the truth? Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure. Uh, but um, it was certainly one of those memor- uh, one of those events that for the rest of my life, I will, I will certainly remember. And um you know, the thing about that case, too, is in those days, we did very little screening of luggage going into aircraft holds. And again, um, I forget the flight number we had before 103, but we had another bombing that wasn't as bad. And I think the plane was able to land. But it was one of the vulnerabilities that was identified as to, well, look, mm. let's be smart about this. Let's just screen for bombs. You know, you right. think about that today. Right. Dogs everywhere. Right. Like, yeah. You have to and, take off your shoes. You have to take off everything. Uh, you know, like, yeah. Right. And, and in those days it was, well, who's going to pay for it? Uh, whose right. responsibility right. is it? Right. Uh, but, you know, we learned a lot from that bombing. Um, and um, I would like to say, uh, without a doubt, that as a result of that bombing, that uh, aviation security globally uh, got a hell of a lot safer. Right. And and the world recognized that we need some basic security, such as let's screen for bombs. <laughs> and um, right. it was just a time period, 1988. Yeah. And that's wow. why we have the Orion team and Mitch Rapp, you know. So <laughs> right. Right. Spin. Uh, right. I, uh, I I tell you what, I was so struck by reading American Assassin of it was almost like Mitch Rapp was sitting in our office uh, <laughs> reading, reading the cable traffic. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, I don't think I've written about this before, but I'll tell you guys this. We, you know, one of the things my office had was the Rewards for Justice program. And we always wanted at that time when Pan Am 103 crashed, we had a $2 million maximum bounty. And we decided internally that the only $2 million we would pay would be for someone who brought the bomber to us, mm. whether we could capture, kill, whatever. And um, unfortunately, we never got an opportunity to do that. But um, the closest we we came was I, you know, we paid the informant that set up Ramsey Yosef uh, 
1.2 million. Uh, but we were withholding that 2 million threshold to capture the persons responsible for the Pan Am 103 bombing. I think Vince would have liked that. Right. Yeah. I'm surprised. Do you think, Chris, in any of the books, we have a bounty program like that on our end, on, on the American side of things? I don't know, Vince. No, Vince never brought that up. I yeah, don't I don't think. think he brought that. We'll have to look carefully through the books. But yeah. do you think, though, there's a chance this could be, and I know we're we're decades out, it could be one of those cases where something or someone is still out there and we're getting to the age where they're they're getting older, the the last uh, generation of people with inside knowledge or who had a hand are looking at the end of their life and, and might there be a source somewhere or is this just a cold case, lock it away, we got all the evidence you think we'll ever have or do things sometimes come out at about this point? Well, I'm always optimistic. I, I think you raise a good point. Uh, when I look back at some of my cold cases that I've worked, you can always hope that that it could happen. But if you look at just the geopolitics of the potential players that are involved, you know, Gaddafi was taken out. Right. Uh, both the Libyan bombers that were allegedly responsible for this, they have passed away. Uh, so uh, if you start looking at Iran, yes, you could always hope for, let's say, for, for example, a defector to, to come to us from their intelligence service and, and bring evidence or a smoking gun out. Uh, there's always hope that somebody from Hezbollah would defect or uh, we could snatch them uh, and they would own up to that. Uh, but it's been a long time. And, you know, um, that's part of the challenge with these cases, too. It was so long ago. Who is really remembering those events, unless you're some old old timer like me uh, or uh Vince when he's writing about him in American Assassin. So, uh, you know, which, you know, is a good, it, as, as tragic as the entire hostage situation was in Beirut and, and certainly the horrific bombing of Pan Am 103, you know, I, I like the fact that, that Vince wrote about that because forever that will be in a book for people to read and remember. And much like we're chatting today, you know, think about, well, I wonder what happened with that case. Right. So you never know what these kinds of stories spark. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the time I, I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm not, a, not a geography teacher like Mike. So most of the time when I, I read these books, you know, whether it be Brad Thor, Vince or um, Jack, I'm reading about these events for the first time. And then I, it, that allows me to then go on and, and then I, I read a book like from you, you know, to, to learn, you know, the nonfiction side. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's great. You, you, you captured that perfectly that this is documents it and hopefully that it, you know, sparks an interest, you know, many years down the road. What, what was this bombing? So, well, we, we don't want to keep you too long, but we do want to ask you, you know, one last thing. So, um, you've written, you know, a couple really great books, highly recommend our listeners to check them out. But um, what's in the works right now? What are you What are you currently up to? Yeah, what's next? Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, I, we recently I really I recently lost my uh, literary agent to uh, cancer, mm, so sorry. I'm kind of in a little bit of uh, a uh, holding pattern for the time okay. being. But uh, I do have another project that um, is uh, plodding along, and you know, of course, it's going to be a story like. Um, 
uh, uh, Beirut rules. You know, I, uh, the older I get, uh, guys, um, you know, the hourglass of time is, is kind of turned against me. And uh, there's some cases that I think still need uh, some transparency, and I want to shine a light on some of them. And uh, every one of the books that I've written so far has resulted in kind of a long tail of other people coming forward and bringing something new to light as a result of that. We're much like us today talking about, you know, the wonderful fiction that Vince Flynn wrote that's so mirror image to uh, to my time period with Beirut rules. But that's what I always try to do with my story. So I've got another one like that that's in the works. And, uh, you know, I'm highly optimistic that, you know, just predicated on on uh, uh, the books I've had published in the past, that, that this one will be published too once uh, I nail down a, uh, a new literary agent uh, that uh, that's what I'll be doing. Okay. All right. Look forward to that. Well, you are not just an encyclopedia of knowledge on um, the history of American intelligence, but also a primary source to all these uh, historical events. Uh, so I, whatever you continue to educate the public on and, and spill the beans and these stories and that need to be told, um, we will be right there following along. So please keep us updated. We'll look for your posts. And so speaking of that, the people, um, where can they find you? Where can they follow your work? I know you're on Twitter. Uh, any other platforms you want to plug and let the people know how to follow you? Sure. That's very kind of you, Mike. I'm, I'm certainly uh, on all the social media platforms on Twitter, you know, at Fred underscore Burton, uh, or you can find me at uh, officialfredburton.com. Uh, I have to thank uh, Jack Carr uh, and Brad Thor for being uh, tremendous friends in the thriller space with, uh, you know, utilizing my books and helping promote my my books and, and the assistance of their books. So they're just wonderful guys. And I thank you for what you do and, you know, for keeping uh, Vince's memory alive. And, and certainly um, I look forward to reading all of his books and I'm, uh, I'm not there yet, but I'll get there. Well, cool. let us know once, once you get there, what you think. Yes, I will. I will, but I have to plug this before you guys go. Uh, your listeners do need to read American Assassin. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, yes sir. they do. Well, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It was very enlightening, very educational. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Well, we hope you guys really enjoy the interview as much as me and Mike did. That was really nice talking to Fred. He's such a nice, like, kind guy. Right. He's a good soul. Yeah, very much so. And he's done so much for our country. He was involved in so many of these important historical events of the last the three decades, really. It's it's just incredible. Four decades, even. Yes. Very, you know, true, true patriot right there. True and patriot. more recently, since we talked, I picked up a copy of Under Fire about the untold story of the attack in Benghazi. So... I know a lot of you guys, and we love the movie 13 Hours. Fred is also an expert on the events uh, and the failures of, you know, the diplomatic security service and the, the slow response and, unfortunately, the loss of life of American personnel uh, in the Benghazi attack. Well, Fred also wrote a book on that. So, Chris, that's my next book I'm going to read now that I just picked it up. 
Yes, and I highly encourage any of our listeners to go give any of his books, you know, a, a pick, pick a copy up. Beirut Rules, Ghost, um, Under Fire, Under it? Fire. So they're all really good. You know, I, I read a couple of sections of Beirut Rules, and it's it's it even though it's nonfiction, it, at times it it felt like fiction. You know, it felt like historical fiction. So yeah, he's a great great author. Nice talking to him. Yeah, he also, talking about just being a good soul, he sent us some pictures, uh, direct primary sources from his time in the field. One of them, he's on a plane debriefing a hostage after a release that he was involved in. And then another is the original wanted poster uh, through the Rewards for Justice program for um, Imad Mugnia who plays a major role in American Assassin, so a historical character that Vince decided to write in his books. And Fred was one of the architects of a rewards program to collect intelligence that would lead to his capture. And we we got a photograph of one of those first uh, posters. So thank you, Fred. We'll be posting on our social media those incredible documents that he shared with us. So again, just an intelligent patriot and um, glad to say friend of the podcast now yes good friend of the podcast so as we always do we have to thank our patrons including our special operator sherry f our special agents george matt don dennis peggy Catherine, ray bridget jeff and mark please uh we said it at the top I'll, i'll say it again subscribe rate review us on your favorite podcasting platform you can find us online at midtrappod.com or on Twitter and Instagram at midtrappod. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. See you Wednesday. See you Wednesday. Live, live, live. 9 p.m. Eastern Time coming at you. Midtrappod. Midtrappod live podcast. <laughs>